My friends, welcome back to the Smoky Mirror Podcast. I love you all so much. Thank you for joining me. My guest today is Lamel McMorris. Lamel is the founder of Phase Two Consulting, a prominent strategic advisory firm that services both some of the nation's leading decision makers. And he's also the founding principal of Greenlining Realty, a development corporation headquartered in his childhood neighborhood of West, West Woodlawn in Chicago, Illinois. Greenlining is dedicated to reversing the historical effects of redlining by developing quality housing and commercial spaces. Lamel has also obtained his bachelor's from Morehouse, his master's from Princeton, and is currently pursuing his doctorate at Northeastern University. He sits on the board of directors for multiple nonprofits and also serves as my personal mentor. Lamel, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It's uh, remarkable to be here this evening. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to start the show off um, by talking about Joe Rogan, because Joe Rogan's actually been a a big figure in my life because I really enjoy his podcast and it inspired me to create my own podcast. Um, but I really wanted to get your perspective as somebody who I respect very much, somebody who's uh, much older and more seasoned. I wouldn't say much older, you know, 35, 40, maybe, <laughs> but more seasoned. What is your whole take on what's been going on with him in the media recently? You know, I think, um, uh, by the way, let me let me just say this uh, for for clarity's sake. Uh, I don't speak on behalf of uh, any of the organizations that I am affiliated with. Uh, any of the organizations actually that employ me, including one update to my bio. Uh, for 19 years, I led Phase Two Consulting, uh, but I've transitioned as of November 1st mm. uh, from Phase Two Consulting uh, to the head of policy, regulatory, and government relations. Uh, at Edward Jones uh, Financial Services Firm. Uh, so, um, congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you, thank you very much. And that uh, that's a whole you know other discussion, podcast discussion, maybe or question uh, to come up later. I, look, we are uh, and and have been always at a point where um, we need to educate um, both in within our community. Uh, and that is the African-American community, but especially those outside of the African-American community. There are certain words uh, that I can't use because I'm not a member of uh, said communities. And there are certain things that are uh, appropriated to certain cultural norms. Uh, they have historic and damaging ramifications when used outside uh, of our community because it lacks uh, context, it lacks uh, history, and it lacks experience. Uh, and so I would just uh, suggest to Spotify uh, and that, you know, not just for this particular individual who is currently um, in a crisis uh, in terms of what's happening uh, uh, with this particular use of, uh, of uh, a certain word, but I would say overall, when it comes to issues of diversity, equity, uh, it is incumbent upon all, uh, and inclusion especially, is incumbent upon all corporations and organizations to do everything they can to create safe places for all of their associates, employees, listeners, and to promote ways of building bridges and to educate each other uh, and to ensure that uh, when we do speak, we speak from a place of love, 
uh, but we also speak from a place uh, where we're well informed and our intentions are clear. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to get you in any trouble, but I do have a kind of a, a follow up question. Sure. Um, so do you think this is from this is kind of what I was thinking. So there's a difference between you're reading Huckleberry Finn and you see the N word versus, you know, you're on a school bus and someone calls you that. Do you think there's any room for nuance or context for that word to be used? Or do you think it should be a kind of like a hard, like absolutely unacceptable um well, we live we live in a we live in a world of nuance, and and um, you know, I'm I personally don't like to dwell in gray. Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, gray is a place where uh, confusion, where trouble, and and where misinformation and misinterpretation can take place. Uh, I either believe that the light is either red or green. Uh, yellow always gets us uh, in trouble. Um, and you know, there are occasions where, where things aren't always as black and white, but when it comes to, to these matters, again, I think we always try to, to, to seek clarity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, uh, to read a story where certain words are used without providing the educational context and the history and the ramifications and all the nuances around it is a disservice to that individual institution they represent and the individual's listeners. And so if you are going to uh, take certain steps uh, that especially are controversial and have, you know, such uh, remarkable historical ramifications, then you also need to take the additional step to educate around that. And so uh, it is, you know, interesting to note that if you were to use certain words and certain uh, songs, lyrics, poems, in certain forms of media uh, regarding other uh, communities. Uh, there have been instances where artists have had to go back into the uh, recording studio and rewrite uh, music because they use certain words that were culturally uh, inappropriate uh, to be used. So the same, and, and that's that's where we get to the equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the same, what's good for one should be good for the other. <clears throat> and so leveling the playing field and making sure the standards are equal for all of us and not just for some of us. Absolutely. That was very well said. Have you noticed uh, a heightened sense of sensitivity towards these amongst like any like big time decision makers that you've been working with? Uh, sensitivity to issues of diversity and inclusion yeah. and equity. No, no doubt about it. I mean, we are, we are, uh, I think we've reached a, a point where, um, you know, post very traumatic events uh, that have, where you've seen certain people of color, uh, female and male, killed uh, in the media in broad daylight uh, for around issues of race, uh, around issues of gender. Uh, it has brought a level of sensitivity and awareness into certain C-suites, uh, corporate boardrooms, that is that we've probably not witnessed uh, uh, in recent years. Uh, certainly, this is you know it is not new for this country to be witness to inequities and wrongs being done to people of color. Uh, but I think we're at a point where folks are willing to take what they've witnessed and 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 
you know, put it in a historical context and now move towards change and equity. We're not anywhere near where we should be, but I can honestly say that I'm seeing incremental uh, movement uh, in places that we probably never would have imagined. And, you know, my my advice and counsel to those who lead some of the nations, you know, and the world's uh, foremost uh, uh, global corporations and titans of industry is let our words and deeds matter. Let us uh, begin to build and develop uh, institutions of purpose and equity uh, and inclusion where everyone uh, is embraced. And that's how we help to move uh, our world and our nation forward in a more really, positive way. I really like that soundbite, let our words and deeds matter. And I especially like the deeds portion of that because I think the actions that you take really speak a lot about what you believe in. And so I really do think that actions speak where speak louder than words. And it's important for people to put their, their, their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Um, so I know you mentioned uh, that transition to Ed Jones. Can you kind of explain to me what, uh, what exactly you're doing with them? And then I have a couple of questions about phase two, because I'll, I'll be honest, like <laughs> when it comes to the policy world, I'm kind of ignorant. So I'd love to just get a, a quick overview of your role. No. So for, for, so I think it's important to know um, just as, we're talking about this other matter tonight, you know, tell you my my new role without putting it in proper context, because I think it's probably important for your listeners to understand how a kid from the south side of Chicago, uh, born in Woodlawn, you know, makes his way uh, to D.C. with an office across the street uh, from uh, the White House and being involved uh, with policy uh, work at the highest level of government. Right. Mm -hmm. So. You know, when I was a kid um, in Chicago, I was very moved by Harold Washington, who was the first, you know, black mayor of Chicago. And, you know, I was I was always that kid who, you know, got the perfect score on uh, the current events exam. So I could tell you the mayor's name. I could tell you the governor's name. I could tell you the president's name, the vice president's name, my city council person's name, my state representative's name. I was always at the table with adults you know, making decisions, uh, you know, about, I was always the student representative or the youngest representative, right? And I say that because I think it's important for your listeners to know, you know, while in our lives, you know, the lines may not necessarily be straight, but there is a line to who and what we are and were even in our younger uh, days. And so, yes, I may have gone left and, you know, during this time between, being a, a young guy and a religion major in college in Morehouse and going on to seminary at Princeton and then coming back home to Chicago and working for Nerbly and then starting uh, a lobbying firm and working for, you know, civil and social rights organizations and then starting a sports agency. While that may appear to be, you know, a left turn, right? The, the constant line, if you look at everything I've done from my childhood, from student government to being in DC right now, is one word, advocacy. I've always been an advocate for causes, right? And so in my role now, the best way to describe it so that you understand it clearly is I'm the chief advocate for our policy issues on behalf of our clients and associates when it comes to wealth management. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that helps promote 
uh, equity and inclusion and, and positive action steps legislative around retirement, tax savings, especially when it comes to uh, the wealth gap uh, that exists for people of color and, and all these issues around wealth creation, uh, that's what I'm doing now, right? So, so whereas uh, for 19 years, I've been an entrepreneur representing Fortune 500 corporations and their various and advocating for various issues at the highest level of government and Capitol Hill and Washington, D.C. and the White House, and even in some state capitals. Now I just have uh, one client. I just work internally. And you know what? I think after everyone does it differently, right? Some of your listeners perhaps work for corporations and then may go uh, and be entrepreneurs. I've liked, you know, my journey as an entrepreneur first, right? And now working inside of a, a corporate structure. One for me, because I still feel the entrepreneurial spirit in the culture and, and how we operate uh, at Edward Jones. I still feel that I, I'm in a purpose-driven, impactful culture and role where I'm not just advocating on behalf of our core issues, but I'm, I'm advocating on behalf of our communities and where we do business and our customers. And so I feel that, you know, I'm still in the lane of the line that I'm in uh, from a child to that of uh, working for civil rights and social justice organizations, to being an advocate for a myriad of issues uh, at the highest level of government, and now just doing it at a larger scale. And, uh, you know, life is about seasons and life is about pivots and life is about, you know, our journey. And I'm very grateful and thankful for this aspect of my journey. And I'm excited about a different level of impact that I'm gonna be able to make at Edward Jones. Absolutely. I appreciate you for giving that context. And I actually wanted to ask you um, a question about that because I was listening to, I think, a talk you gave at Harvard. I'm not exactly sure what the program was, but you mentioned like, you know, if, if Lord, if you tell me to street the streets, let me be the best street sweeper that I possibly can be. So I'm wondering, you know, what made you leave seminary school and then decide, you know what, I'm going to get into policy or lobbying or like, what, what was it that that told you, oh, this is the switch that I need to make and I'm going to go jump into it? The, the, the quote that you mentioned uh, from that uh, um, uh, address to the Harvard uh, Extension uh, School mm -hmm. is actually not mine. Uh, it's actually Dr. King's, uh, where he would say that if it falls our lot, if it falls your lot to be a, a, a street sweeper, street sweets, uh, street sweet streets like Michelangelo carved paintings. His point was no matter whatever, it falls your lot, just do it at the highest level and the best and do it so well that no one unborn or living could ever do it uh, better uh, uh, than you. And so, you know, I've, my, when I was, um, again, that in my life, in addition to that line, there's been this duality between theology and public policy. So, you know, on weekends and uh, most of the extracurricular activities that that I did, they centered around my church. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned how to ski from on the, from my church on the south side of Chicago. Uh, tutoring on Saturdays at my church, you know, sleepovers, sleep-ins at my church. And so on one hand, you know, born and raised on Berean, at Berean Baptist Church on the south side of Chicago, but again, in the shadow of this very historic, momentous uh, occasion of the first Black mayor elected uh, in Chicago and all that that represented for me as someone who's attracted to leadership and government and policy. 
And so while I acknowledge a calling to ministry, my minute, my, my acknowledgement was not to the four walls of the church. So the, the typical track uh, is that, you know, when you go on to seminary divinity school, you're going on to pastoral ministry, et cetera. I was, I've been born and raised and moved more in the Kingian, Jesse Jackson theology, public policy. So my acknowledgement to ministry was beyond uh, the four walls of the church. And I feel like I'm still fulfilling my calling because I'm still advocating uh, for issues that I care about and still very much connected on the board of most of the civil rights organizations that either raised me, I work for, or gave me scholarships uh, to go to school, full circle moment, I now serve uh, in a governance and board and leadership role. And I help now uh, lead uh, fundraising efforts and efforts to uh, propel those organizations for the next 100 years. Very nice. Um, I'm asking because I'm kind of at a point where sometimes I don't know exactly what I want to focus in on. I've been thinking about maybe going back to school, but I was interested just because it's like, how did you know, okay, you know what, now it's time to, to make this transition. Like, how did you know, you know, like I'm going all in on seminary school. I think I want to be a preacher or a pastor. Yeah. Maybe with my own church. And now it's like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm more on public policy. I kind of get the, the interest, but when was it, when did it click? Like, okay, I'm going to actually pursue this and take steps towards opening a firm. You know, what's fascinating. I don't want to get overly uh, religious uh, for you and your, your listeners, but I can only, you know, speak for my journey and hopefully my journey will help inform uh, you and some of your other um, listeners' journey. My 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 main point is my life has been less about how smart, how calculated, how strategic uh, I am. If you really look at my story, it's really about how good God has been, mm-hmm. and how basically there's a certain point where faith and works meet, right? And at a certain there's also another point where your steps are ordered. And so, uh, Jordan, I get up every day not having it all figured out, but get up with the spirit of don't mess up what's already been worked out. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't uh, uh, there's no way that I would have known as a kid who grew up on the south side using his plastic cowboy men and army men who have got guns killing each other. Right. Uh, there's no way that I could have strategically mapped it out because I was, you know, using those men and pretending like one was the president, the rest were, this is what I was doing at, you know, nine and 10 years old, pretending like the rest were secret service men. I could not have mapped out all the steps from there, riding, you know, pushing those things around on my mom's carpet on the South side to now being in Washington, DC, actually engaged in policy work at the highest level. There's that line right? And there is the faith journey. And yes, I did have to go to school. Yes, I did have to engage in work. It all, but it all had to meet. And so most, if not all of my opportunities, you know, I didn't create, they met me, including this, this new one. I didn't seek uh, this new opportunity, but I was ready for it, mm-hmm. right? When it came. And so there's this level of preparation, work, but it's also my journey is undergirded by faith. that's really comforting to hear because I think that's one thing that I can actually identify with also is I haven't expected to be doing half the things that I'm doing. It just kind of like, like stepping stone. It was just kind of following a path. And it's just like, sometimes it's startling to me. I'm like, wow, like I I did not expect to do this, but 
um, if it's really comforting when things fall into place and you get these synchronicities that happen for you, you're like, wow, there's God looking up for me. And so, you know, and I don't, I don't actually want to oversimplify it either because mm-hmm. the journey is, is you know, there's a um, Jeremiah Wright who uh, uh, renowned past former pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ on on the South Side of Chicago uh, used to say all too well, you know, everybody sees the glory, they don't know the story. Right. I don't want to over romanticize or oversimplify the story part, because in this era, your colleagues and younger, all they get to see right is the end, the glory part. The journey is scary. Uh, The journey is rough. Yeah, you may see me now, but I can't you know, we don't there'll be a whole nother show to tell you how many times I fell down, got knocked down, you know, got in trouble, got messed up. Right. So. Uh, if if it's not clear, if you know, I guess the point I'm trying to say or make is, if everything is not clear to you or don't you that don't don't get worried about that. You know, again, there is a line. You just acknowledged it, right? There is a a line. It may not necessarily be straight, right? And some of the some of the journey and some of the road and some of the line is crazy, <laughs> and it's it's scary. And you're like, why did this happen? But but. The thing that I hope I can attest to and the thing I hope that that I'm evidence of is that there is good in the journey and the journey is worth it. And if we stay on it um, and keep fighting and keep working and keep the faith, things things ultimately do work out. Not always in our time, not always when we want it, uh, but I'm evidence and you are, too. That Thank things you. do work out. That's a great message, um, especially for the young people that I have listening. I actually had um, some young people on the show um, earlier this month, and you know, for Black Future Month, I wanted to bring in some um, some younger some younger voices around like nineteen, the youngest seventeen, and the oldest around like twenty one. Some young young guys from Miami Dade who actually went to the middle school that I taught at, but they weren't they weren't there when I was there. Yeah. Um, so I was getting some perspective on them and some of them had actually noticed some gentrification going on in their neighborhood. And the way he brought up to me was he was like, oh, man, like one like one day the, the garbage cans are going to change color. And I was like, what do you mean by that? We're yeah. <laughs> saying like that's how they rezone it. And so, you know, a different trash company comes in. And so I was talking to them about, you know, we can like buy up our own blocks and quote unquote gentrify it ourselves. And, that, and I've mentioned that, you know what, I actually have a mentor who's doing something like that. So um, I read a little bit about how green lining works, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to articulate it and then you can clean it up. Yeah. So essentially, I think you're buying like vacant lots or abandoned or what have you, buying those, having people in the community that are developing those, selling it to them, and then they're having people in the community live in them. Is it something like that? So, so what? What I'd like your your listeners to to do is to dig a little deeper and do some research uh, on their own on something that I'm getting ready to throw out there, and it's a, it was a his, historic practice. In some ways, we could say it's it's still going on, but a historic practice called redlining, where red lines were drawn through predominantly African American uh, communities around the country, and definitely those populated by people of color. And banks, financial institutions, and in most cases, in some cases, in in coordination and concert with federal government agencies, there were red lines drawn that separated our communities 
and were designated as disinvestment, the worst places to invest and would not give loans, would not allow uh, folks from our community to buy homes. And so the premise of me going home to Chicago, and by the way, you could literally, uh, please research this, redlining, you could literally put the historic maps, most of the historic maps from 50 plus years ago, where they drew these red lines on most of our most troubled, historic and challenged uh, black communities in particular, but communities of color from LA to Maine. So the point is, when we look at, you know, again, we look, we see the end result, but we don't always dig deeper as to why, you know, Woodlawn looks the way it is. You know, why Bankhead Highway in Atlanta still looks the way or looks the way it is. Mm -hmm. Why there's still some levels of devastation, right, in, in uh, uh, you know, in, in parts of our urban and rural areas is because, you know, folks decided that they were going to deliberately and legally uh, disinvest in our communities, right? And so I go home, having grown up in one of those communities called Woodlawn on the south side of Chicago, I go back to my childhood home about uh, six years ago, and I stand on the porch, right, of my childhood home, this home that's been in our family for, you know, six plus decades. And I see the same vacant lots across the street when I was there as a little kid. Mm. I see the same blighted buildings when I turn to the right and I just said, like, you know, I define uh, an entrepreneur as someone that goes on top of a building, jumps off and figures out how they're going to land on the way down. I didn't have any background in real estate development. You know, I called up uh, one of my uh, childhood best friends. I said, hey, I, I'm uh, I'm going to start this real estate development firm and I need you to help me. He's worked in and around the city and I'm going to be very deliberate about it. I'm going to call it green lining. So where they drew red lines we're going to try to spur economic development. We're going to build new houses on vacant lots. We're going to rehab blighted properties. And so that's what green lining is. Uh, it is, yes, uh, we are, are doing our best to go. I'm, I'm back right on the block where I grew up, back in the neighborhood where I grew up. And, you know, I'm trying to secure uh, and create a model for, for all of us to go back to our communities and just lean in a little bit, right? Uh, I mean, if I, I knew that I could not, you know, redevelop my entire community uh, by myself. That was never the attempt. What I did know that I could do was be a catalyst and spark change and, and spur other development. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to think that, uh, yes, I've got nine to 10 new homes that we built, uh, rehabbed a, a few others, but now I can see other developers, you know, piggyback in and, and, and that's okay. We, you know, it can't be all about us if we're really serious about uh, making changes. So that's that's how Greenline and Realty USA was born. And I plan to do what, you know, what we've done uh, in my neighborhood in Woodlawn and other communities around the country. That's really exciting. Like I, I see that as a future um, in our community is us buying back the block and, and really beautifying it and taking ownership and pride in what we have. I think a lot of us have kind of learned to almost just look at our stuff like, oh, like I want to get away from it instead of, you know, kind of like saying, you know, this is mine. I'm going to beautify it. And so I love the the example that you're setting. And it's definitely something that I hope to to emulate in the future as well. Um, I know you want to, uh, you have time. So I want to ask like one final question. Sure. Um, you know, as you, as we think about the future of the black community, I think there is a portion of economic um, growth that needs to happen, but also we need some policy changes too. How do you think 
or what kind of policies do you think are should be at the forefront of our consciousness as we move forward? Yeah, I think uh, any efforts, both from uh, a local, state, or federal level, to close the wealth gap uh, is huge, right? Uh, money is not everything, but resources allow us to send our kids to school, allow us to reinvest in our communities, uh, allow us to take care of our families. So closing the wealth gap, and and not just you know for now, but but teaching and strengthening and the financial fitness and education of uh, communities of color is huge. Uh, I think secondly, uh, I can't, you know, uh, I can't say enough about the importance of creating pathways for young people of color to pursue as much education as possible. So, you know, figuring out legislative remedies to college debt, the cost and tuition around the pursuit of college, the benefits, the real connectivity of an education to a life uh, and being able to build a family and, and, and have a standard of living uh, that is, you know, that leads you to a level of wealth, being able to close that gap and make that connection between an, a, an education and a livable wage and earning potential is a, is a big deal. I think we have to constantly uh, reinforce the need for ourselves to to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think our health, not just physical, but mental is so critical in this era. And finally, we have to figure out ways to, I just got off and I'll, I'll make this the last, right before getting on the call with you, um, I was on a, an emergency board call. And I, I don't know, I hope they don't mind me saying this. I was on an emergency board call for a small organization based in Northeast DC that I've been a part of for over a decade now. It's called Life Pieces to Masterpieces. Mm. We develop young black males where they are. And unfortunately, Jordan, where we happen to find them is in the most devastated. But our, our point is that we're gonna take these life pieces and through arts, education, and we're gonna make masterpieces. You know, they're gonna, channel art, channel their energy, channel positive energy, right? And so here we are in the heart of the nation's capital doing the hardest work ever, but our kids have to run from the playground or from the van into the facility because brothers are shooting and dealing drugs and there are gun shells, literally gun shells. And we have to have an emergency board meeting to figure out how to keep our kids safe, even in the middle of trying to take care of them. You don't even want to hear the devastating stories that I just heard about a young man cradling his mother as she was just shot by a straight bullet. He's not even 15 years old. My point is this issue of violence. We can talk about so many other things about what other people are doing, but let's talk about what we are doing to each other. And yes, I recognize the context, historic ramifications, I recognize all the issues of devastation and inequities that exist in our community. But at some point, we've got to take some level of responsibility and ownership for what we're doing to ourselves. The triggers that were pulled, the gun shells that were pulled, those were young black men in our community shooting at each other in the middle around our children. And so um, I, I want your listeners to do what you did you know, and do what we're trying to do 
at some point, all of us have to lean in. What you did by going back and working in some of the most challenging schools is a model of excellence that is worthy of being duplicated. And you should be acknowledged and celebrated and we should keep that going. But everyone has a role to play in trying to better our world and better, especially the most historic and devastated communities in our nation. This is in the nation's capital, less than minutes and miles away from where we just talked about the policies that run and dictate this nation. And in many instances, the world are governed. Young people have to run and hide and, and, and actually have to have protocols and training in place when there's gunshots to duck under tables and go in the closets in the middle of trying to uh, do work to help propel them to go forward. It, it, won't, it won't work, it won't last. And, and it is a state of emergency and it is a critical uh, state of urgency. And this is what we need to be doing. And this is what our work should be all about. Lamel, I really appreciate you sharing that story. It's something that's been weighing on my mind for honestly, since I've started teaching and I've always felt like, like we just need all hands on deck. And when I was speaking with these young guys who grew up here in, you know, in Dade County, they kept it real with me and they said they honestly don't think the killing would ever stop. And I thought that was a terrible um, prognosis and a terrible mindset for our young people to be in is because they, they really don't see any hope or of it getting better. And so I'm hoping that, you know, if we keep on working, that the prognosis can change and there'll be a little bit more optimism in seeing but no, it, it, we definitely need all hands on deck. And I hate to, to close on kind of a, uh, you know, a darker note, but, you know, the next time it, you're. It, it actually is not a dark note, brother. And, I, and mm. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's, it's actually not as dark because that, that means what we just signaled is opportunity. Mm -hmm. Right. It's an opportunity for all of us to lean in and 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 look, the best sermon that we can preach is when we don't have to use our mouths right it's about it's about work now it's about it's about action and and there's enough room and there's enough work for all your listeners for all of us to get in the middle of and it's not easy work you know the the call that i was just on and the discussion that i just left to jump on with you it's it's, it's hard work uh these people are doing god's work but it's it's necessary and this is what we are supposed to do and this is what we've been called to do Absolutely. Um, one last question. Have you heard of King Randall, the young man in Albany, Georgia, who opened in his own school? No. Okay. That's actually a young man I had on the podcast earlier. Um, but there's a young man, he's 22 years old. He's set to open up his own school in, in Georgia for, for young Love men. It. And I thought it was amazing what he's done. He raised like $100,000 to buy 40 acres of land just off of GoFundMe. They have like four buildings now. So, you know, there's definitely work for all of us. And his message was just get started. So I think that's a really encouraging message. And thank you for amplifying his work, because that's that's, mm -hmm. you know, the reason why other young sisters and brothers don't know, you know, a, a path to go is because they don't see that young brother. They don't see individuals like you and me enough. Right. Mm -hmm. And so how can I, you know, if all you put on the cover of magazines are athletes and entertainers, how in the world could I aspire to be a business owner and to be in, a, you know, a doctor and et cetera. So, yeah, we've got uh, these people uh, also have to see us. Uh, where they are, right. not just uh, on TV and in magazines. Exactly. That's the power of Black-owned media. We need more of it. Yes, sir. So whenever you're in Miami, we definitely need to reconnect. I would love to, you know, get in the studio, too. I do shoot this in a studio in Midtown um, when people are in, 
in the city. So, you know, if you're it. free, we should definitely set that up. I look forward to it, brother. All right. Well, thanks again so much, Lamel. And I look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye.